0: friends, what if you could reinvent yourself? You had the opportunity to completely reinvent yourself overnight. What would you look like tomorrow? I would have loved to have seen some of you as teenagers. As you were, as you were searching for your identity, you maybe did reinvent <coughs> yourself. And I had the opportunity, in a sense, to reinvent myself when I was a teenager when we moved and I changed schools. And I went from being a very shy, quiet person to being a lot more outgoing. You, you would have loved to have seen me in my cowboy boots too. That was kind of the thing. So I had to reinvent myself to, to create a certain image that would be appealing to other people so that I would be accepted and affirmed and loved. And uh, Omar King did a great job a few weeks ago of talking about this house how we want to create an image for ourselves. We want to, to form this image, craft this image for ourselves because we are convinced that what we need is more self-esteem. We need praise from others. We need to be accepted from others. So that's why we create Facebook profiles the way we do. We're Instagram profiles. That's why we post the pictures that we post because we want to portray a certain image. We want people to think about us in a certain way. And brothers and sisters, if we, we still do this even though we don't want to, even though we know this is not ultimately what we need. Consider the image that you try to craft for yourself at work or as we already mentioned on social media. The image you try to craft at school. What's the image you're crafting? What we think we need is more praise and glory for ourselves but ultimately what we need what you need brother sister is to know and enjoy the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this is where you'll find what you are seeking what you're searching after to behold and to enjoy the glory of God in Christ in our passage this morning Jesus does something that wouldn't be right for any of us, he prays for his own glory. And he does so in order that the Father would receive glory through the fulfilling of his work in giving eternal life to a people. The context of this passage is this Great discourse, this final discourse that we've been walking through the last few chapters where Jesus is talking to his disciples like like they're his little children and he's about to leave and he's encouraging them, he's preparing them for what they're going to go through without him. He's encouraging them and preparing them for when he'll no longer be with them physically. And now just before he is arrested, he turns his words Still, we can consider it a final discourse of sorts. He turns his words away from the disciples and to God. And yet, in a sense, he's still talking so that his disciples can hear him. Now, one interesting thing is that as you look through the Bible, this is somewhat typical of farewell speeches, before someone leaves or departs, before someone dies. And we see this very thing in Deuteronomy chapters 32 and 33 with Moses. He's been with the people of Israel, led them out of Egypt through the wilderness, through all these trials, through all these murmurings and grumblings. And they're on the, the precipice of entering into the promised land. But Moses doesn't get to go. And he addresses the people with these, uh, a beautiful song of praise to God. And as much as John has talked about Moses and the law, I think we should take note of the similarities there. Moses brought down the law of God, but in Jesus Christ, he is full of grace and truth. Moses, before he, after he speaks to the people, it then tells us in chapter 33 that he, he solemnly warned the people of Israel. Do you know what he warned them? He warned them to be careful to keep the law, to keep all that he had spoken to them, and to pass it down to the cho- their children, to give them these commands. And yet Jesus is greater. In his farewell speech, he doesn't lay down a law his disciples have to keep. He speaks out what he has fulfilled for them. He tells them what he has done to give them grace. He gives them not law, but promises based not on their fulfillment of certain things, but on his fulfillment of the work of God for their behalf. Look at the general structure of Jesus' prayer. We'll get into this over the next few weeks. These first five verses, this is a very simple, simplistic almost sort of structure, but just notice in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for his own glory. And then in 16 through 19, he prays for these disciples, prays for their well-being, he prays for them. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays not only for them, but also for those future disciples who would believe in Jesus through their word, that they would be one also. And the text this morning in verses 1 through 5 centers on this prayer of Jesus for his own glory. So as we consider that, first I want you to consider how it is appropriate for Jesus to pray for his own glory. We readily recognize it wouldn't be right for us to simply pray for our own glory. Lord, glorify me. How terrible would that sound? How strange would that be sound? But for Jesus, the greatest and best of all beings, it makes perfect sense. That is where we all find our joy and hope that the best and greatest of all beings would be exalted and lifted high. He prays it not for his own sake ultimately, but for ours. And we know throughout the book of John Jesus has repeatedly says, I do nothing on my own, but only that which what what the Father has told me to do. He's living his life in complete and perfect obedience to the Father. So we know that this prayer, in addition, is an obedience to the Father. He is praying in complete accordance with the will and purposes and plans of God. It's interesting also, he makes, in making these prayers he also is making promises. We could view them as promises, right? Because he's, he's making this prayer to God in complete accordance with the will of God. Therefore, we know what the answer will be. The Father will answer every prayer that Jesus makes to the Father. So these won't just be prayers. They are promises. And in the hearing of the disciples and in our reading, we can take comfort from these promises that these Prayers are as good as fulfilled. Now notice what Jesus says. He says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. We've seen this hour before. First we saw it in chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding of Cana. When Jesus was brought into this situation, He said, My hour hasn't yet come. What, What do you want me for? But now we see that the hour has come. In chapter 12, verse 23, the the Greeks come to him, the Gentiles come to him, in faith it seems, and Jesus sees that as a signal, now the hour has come. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, the betrayal of Judas had just taken place, and now things are set into motion, this is the hour that he's been waiting for. And it's not a literal one hour period, right, It's it's an extended period of time from When things were set in motion, carrying through as he enters into his suffering, as he enters into his passion, that means his his suffering, his trial, which ultimately leads to his crucifixion and death and resurrection. Now the hour has come. And he prays for glory. Glory, glorify your son. This glorification has already begun, but it won't be ultimately completed, ultimately fulfilled, until He finds Himself nailed to a cross. This is where the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Son, finds its climax. It is a glory shrouded in mystery from the eyes of this world, revealed only to those who belong to Him. The Son of God crucified for sinners, and this is glorious. This is the glory Jesus is speaking of here. Glorify your son in this mysterious way which is complete and utter foolishness to the things of this world. This is not the kind of glory we would want. This is not the kind of glory we would want to enter into or rejoice in or delight in. We naturally seek the wrong sorts of glory, even as we've talked about crafting your own image. You're seeking, we are seeking wrong sorts of glory. We pray wrongly. We still do as believers. We, we pray for our own pleasure, for our own fulfillment, that things would go our way just for our own comfort or, or convenience. How often, brothers and sisters, do you pray in those, those simple ways? We fail. We fail at this every day and yet where we fail Christ succeeds and is glorious he entered into the shame he entered into the suffering he entered into crucifixion for you and me brother and sister and now he indwells us by his Holy Spirit and he is enabling us now to pray in ways that accord with his purpose and will he's working in us a willing obedience in fulfilling his plan for us and seeking a better sort of glory. And there will be glory for us as we'll see in the coming passages. Jesus prays that we would have the same glory that He has so that we would be one with Him. An amazing, mind-blowing passage. And then Jesus, uh, notice the reason Jesus prays for His own glory is so that the Father would be glorified in Him. It doesn't terminate in the Son. It keeps on going. It it. Uh, reverberates throughout the world in the glory of God. The Father is glorified by His willing obedience in fulfilling the plan of the Father. And next, I want you to see that the means of glorifying the Father then is giving eternal life to those who have been given to Him. This is the means Jesus is going to glorify the Father. So Jesus is saying, glorify me the Father will glorify the Son, and then the Son will glorify the Father by using the authority that had been given to Him to give eternal life to His people. It says He has been given authority over all flesh, authority of judgment. He is the dividing line between those who enter into life and those who enter into judgment. He has authority to give life. He has authority to withhold life. And the Father has given a people to the Son. We've seen this before in chapter 10, 27 and 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. They hear me and they follow me. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's been given a people. And for these people, he will give them eternal life. Well, this term is used only a couple of times in what we've called the book of glory. Remember uh, chapters 1 through 12, 13, we call the book of signs, in which Jesus is performing signs. People are seeking signs. Jesus is confirming his identity with these signs, and yet it's not enough for belief. And then in the remaining chapters, we see it's called the book of glory, we might call it, because this is where we see the glory of Christ most evident in His suffering and His work for sinners. And this word is used here in verses 2 and 3, this this term, eternal life. Earlier uses we saw in chapter 6, chapter 7, it's the Spirit who gives life to those who believe. And here it is the Son who is giving eternal life to a people. Verse 3 is amazing, isn't it? he further explains what it is he's talking about. And this is eternal life. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is not simply intellectual knowledge. This is a relational, spiritual, supernatural sort of knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge given by the revelation which is in Jesus Christ through the life giving Spirit. He's the one who caused you to see and know God. He's the one who's caused you to know and delight in who Jesus is. And this refers also to an ongoing relational, supernatural knowledge of who God is. How then does Jesus give them eternal life? How does He give them the knowledge of God? Interestingly enough, we see how he does that at the very beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus has explained Jesus, and this is how He is giving eternal life, by revealing who God is, giving you a knowledge of who God is. This is what eternal life is, knowing God. It's not just living a long time. It's not even simply an abundance of life. It is knowing God personally and intimately through Jesus Christ. This is the very thing that is promised in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four In the New Covenant. No one will teach their neighbor know God because they will all know Him from the least to the greatest. We know Him by the indwelling Spirit of God who has revealed to us who Jesus is. You know God. Imagine... Your loved one, a loved one, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, especially one that you've grown so close to, how well do you know them? How well do you know yourself? You you don't need anyone to teach you about yourself. Now, sure, you can learn more about yourself over time. You can learn more about others, your spouse, your children, but you know them. You don't need anyone else to teach you about them. In the same way, we know the Father. We know Him personally. And notice Jesus can say He has already, in a sense, done this. He's already accomplished this task of revealing God. He's done it throughout His ministry, throughout His life, and now He's about to do it ultimately in His saving, atoning work on the cross for sinners. This reveals who God is. This causes you to know Him Now the hour is here. It's almost as good as done and He will reveal the Father in this amazing way. This reminds us, these words about eternal life remind us of our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family members, co-workers. And the only way they will ever receive life, the only way they will ever receive eternal life is through Jesus Christ. This is The ha- only way you're going to get them to be able to see Christ is by speaking about Christ in some way. In giving them the Word of God which reveals who He is that the Spirit then might reach in and give them a knowledge of God. This, this should empower and motivate our prayers for them because it's not a work we can do even with words of the Gospel. It is a work of the Spirit of God. It would impact, should empower our evangelism, our speaking regularly of Christ. This is how people will have eternal life if they know the only true God and Jesus Christ and he has sent. But consider also for, for you, brother and sister, in your understanding of what eternal life is, are you you're simply looking forward to eternal life in the future? at some future date when you die or when Christ returns, just looking forward to a long life in a paradise, will know that this is eternal life. This is that which is truly life, to know God, to know Jesus Christ, His Son, knowing and enjoying, delighting in who He is through this revelation of Jesus Christ. Consider your own striving. In this present age, your own busyness in this present age. What is it that you labor for day in and day out? What do you labor for? How, how hard do you labor in your work? You're giving it 100%. You're, you're striving every day. How hard do you labor in your parenting? How hard do you labor for your recreation and your leisure? How hard do you labor in your studies? How hard do you labor for your possessions? Brothers and sisters, labor to know and enjoy God with that same excitement, with that same eagerness. And I say those things not to shame you, but for your joy. This is where you're going to have joy. It's kind of like, indulge yourself yourself in who God is. Indulge yourself in knowing God. It's not going to be terrible. It's going to be wonderful. It's like indulging yourself in a feast which will fulfill you to the very top. Labor to know and enjoy God. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, 27 through 29. He tells tells the people, don't labor for that bread, which will be destroyed but for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal it is a delight it is a a an indulging in christ and yet it does take work it does take effort even now in the hearing of the preaching of the gospel it takes work it takes labor to enjoy this feast that is set before you. As we sing together, it it takes work, effort for you to not just passively sing the words, but to invest yourself and to consider who God is, to know Him in your daily quiet times. As you gather together with brothers and sisters over coffee, it takes work. But again, it is a miner looking for gold. It is a, a labor of love. We are looking for that which we yearn for and which will fill us up to the very top in our joy. Notice one last thing. The glory of humiliation will give way to a glory of exaltation. In verse 5. This glory of humiliation, this first glory which Jesus prays for, glorify me now, speaking of Descending all the way down to death on a cross will eventually give way to a glory of exaltation. He prays here for a different sort of glory. He speaks as though he's already died, already been buried, already been risen, and ascended into heaven, as if he's looking back on his finished work. When Jesus came to earth, he laid down, in some sense, his heavenly glory when he became a man. He prays, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, he did not lose his divine nature in coming to earth as a man. Rather, he added to his divine nature a human nature. So Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is truly human. Divine. He is truly God and He is truly man. It's not a 50-50 split. He's not half man and half God. It's not really a hundred percent and a hundred percent. He is truly God and truly man. As to his divinity, Jesus is one in essence with the Father and the Spirit. And as to his human humanity, he is truly a human. He didn't just appear to be. When he is resurrected and ascended from the dead, he doesn't lose his human nature. Rather, his time of humiliation is ended and he receives back the glory which he once shared with the Father before his incarnation. This is Philippians 2, isn't it? Philippians 2, where we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, here's what he's praying for. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You might wonder, well, why does this matter? Why is all this theological jargon and detail, why does that really matter? Well, first, it matters because we want to know Christ. We want to know Him. This is who He is. We want to know everything about Him. We want to know His character, His person, His nature. We want to know Him. As much as we humanly can, we want to know Him, even though there's plenty of mystery surrounding these things. Also, one, another reason it matters is if He is not really human, He wouldn't be an appropriate sacrifice for your sin. You you needed a human to die for you. You are a human. You have sinned against the Holy God. You need a perfect and spotless, pure human to die for you, and Jesus is that one. If He was not God, He wouldn't be a sufficient sacrifice for you. You have God in human flesh laying down His life for His own creation. This is the glory of the gospel. Rejoice in it. Delight in it. This is your hope. This is your love of knowing who God is. Hold it closely to you. Cherish it. And brothers and sisters, the same sort of glory awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. It's purchased by the work of Christ purchased by his humiliation, his death on the cross, we too will share in this glory in some magnificent and mysterious way. We will share in this glory, but first comes the cross. First comes the cross. Do not seek the glory that this world seeks. Don't settle. There is a glory coming that will far outweigh all the treasures this world has to offer. And I can see it sometimes. I've seen it before when saints are on their deathbed and they can see the finish line and they know the glory that's coming. Look to that glory now and rejoice. Hold out for that, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together.